I'll be swinging through New York and DC this coming September and October, so please reach out if you want to meet up. Email me at jorschneider at gmail.com or on WeChat at Jordan Schneider and chinaecontalk.substack.com. You've all signed up already, haven't you? So what's it like reporting outside of first-tier China? How to process interacting with mainlanders when talking about Hong Kong? What is uniquely bad about the Chinese superblock urban planning and TV dramas? And what bright lights are there in Chinese culture to focus on when things get really depressing here? To discuss this grab bag of topics, we have Lauren Teixeira, a freelance reporter based in Chengdu. Lauren, welcome to China Econ Talk. Thank you so much for having me. So Lauren, unlike 99% of the foreign journalists in China, you're living outside of the Beijing-Shanghai bubble. So how did you end up in Chengdu and what's your pitch for living outside of Tier 1 China? Wow, thank you so much for asking that. I first came to China, actually not to Beijing. I first landed in Nanjing, which is another second tier city. But I, I did eventually make it to Beijing because I knew that's where all the journalists were. But then the problem was that's where all the journalists are. So, uh, and uh, yeah, I think China coverage is is way too Beijing oriented. But uh, more importantly, Beijing is just f***ing expensive and uh, it makes me really depressed. So I am a freelancer and so there is nothing uh, keeping me here except, of course, my lovely friends. But um, I do, you know, come back often to see them. And so I just kind of picked up and I moved to Chengdu and I've been there for almost a year. So why Chengdu? Because I like it. It's very cosmopolitan without being having like kind of the baggage of a first tier city. And it's the food is great. People are cool. There's like good local culture. Um, I had been many times on like various trips. And so it just felt right as a place to go. Where would you recommend the younger version of yourself to go and stake out uh, her own territory? Chengdu. No, I mean like a different. I'm asking like for like a different city. Like okay, a what, different what, city. What, what else is on the list? Okay, of all the second tier cities, I mean they were all far from first, but I would say in second place places I would move to maybe Chongqing, which is kind of a, an inverse of Chengdu in in many ways, and is just a really fascinating city because Chengdu is very flat. Uh, it's just topographically flat and very relaxed, whereas Chongqing is just all hills and not very relaxed. It's it's kind of intense, but in an exciting way. I don't think it's as livable as Chengdu, but it's it's really a fascinating place. And then also Xiamen is quite nice as second tier cities go. And like the worst one you've been to? The worst city I've been to in China? <laughs> Besides Beijing? <laughs> <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> Like the worst place I've ever been to in China. Uh, there's places I've been in northern Jiangsu that were pretty rough. Okay. It's not really, yeah, Suqian, Suzhou, those are places people don't really go out of their way to visit. I mean, the, one of the tragedies of China coverage is that it really only centers on a few cities. And occasionally, if anybody can be asked to like get out into the countryside. But the vast majority of people don't live in first-tier cities. And... There should probably be more coverage of just shitty third tier cities and Xincheng and places like that, but just nobody wants to go there. Let's start with some of the some of the writing you've been doing about Chengdu and the uh, environs. So, of course, Chengdu hip hop, home of Higher Brothers, Cafe Hu, among others. Yeah. Um, how did you first get introduced into this scene? Actually, so it was pretty by accident. My friend, uh, I have a British friend who in twenty fall of twenty sixteen. 
he like because when people know that you are a china person they sometimes will just send you anything even tangentially related to china which is mostly annoying but My uh teacher in high school yeah. i feel very bad for her whenever there's like that <laughs> saying like Latin yeah. is really important because yeah, she gets yeah. it 15 times yeah, yeah yeah and so this guy he knew i was a china person and he just had seen their video on 88 rising and sent it to me and i'd never heard of them before and i was uh kind of bowled over because they just seemed like really cool uh, which was, you know, not something I'd ever encountered in Chinese people my age of just being like chill and like confident and original and not just really pressed about like buying a apartment. Mm. Um, and so then about less than a year later, I realized no one had really done a good uh, article on them. And so I just pitched it and I, I wrote an article on them. And they were, uh, that was before they got really big. So they were still like, they were very like just excited and, and nice and um yeah, it was cool to hang out with them. So then what? Then what? I don't know. They're still cool. I mean, I, I ran into Masaway the other day, actually, a few uh, weeks ago, and he was really friendly. Um, they're still around in Chengdu. Uh, they've kind of branched out into their various businesses. Uh, I believe Nono is, uh, he's both uh, started a fashion, a streetwear label and gotten into the car detailing business. The car detailing yeah, business? Yeah, yeah. he has Why a car not? detailing shop in the <laughs> suburbs of Chengdu. But, um... Yeah, but they did, I, I guess what you're getting at is they took quite a turn recently in that they, uh, both Nono and uh, Mello on Instagram, they, they did send some fairly strident nationalist uh, rhetoric. Yeah, I'm still debating whether or not this is going to end up with them getting subbed out of the um, of the, <laughs> of the intro music. You know, on the one hand, it's just a flag, right? I yeah. feel like Vava, she was like, shame on Hong Kong, which, is, yeah. which might have been a little too far for me, but I can sort of like go with the like jungle de eming yeah uh, but then a, they were like replying really aggressively to a lot of people's comments uh in like being dismissive of their hong kong fans so i feel, I feel like i'm kind of like one of those like fans of kanye who just yeah. like keeps wanting to find reasons to yeah. not uh not cancel him because i'm because i just like i'm into it i'm not really into cancel culture anyway like i think you just kind of have to accept that sometimes people who are good artists don't have good politics and in a way if you keep the song as your as your intro it's it will just continue to reflect you know changing youth sentiments in china so you know i don't think you have to erase it so so when i see friends on wechat sharing like the cia did hong kong and like yeah. these hong kong idiots like i feel really sad but there's a part of me which you know like cancel culture is really hard when your friends all live in a media environment where like different perspectives aren't easily accessible so i'm i'm curious if you have a take on like not necessarily culpability but like how much you know how much like agency it's right to apply to to young people in china for um for their views on these sorts of things it's funny yeah i was just talking about this with ian johnson like three hours ago and he was having the same revelation and he was like there's a ceiling for your rhetoric because at some point you can't tell someone to look it up because they can't look it up yeah just epistemologically there's not um you're not on even ground and so if you want to really like get into a real discussion with someone, you basically have to red pill them. You know what I mean? Like, I was about to say, it's yeah, like, it's like it's actually you is, really do. It's yeah. That out there. Yeah. Um, the sort of Western opinions on. on yeah. On, and like the Western information you're bringing to these sorts of questions. Yeah. Because you can't just be like send someone an article. You have to be like, oh, by the way, there's an entire world of information that you don't have access to. And the reason is because your overlords don't let you because it's dangerous. <laughs> like, so it's like so it's better to just like nod your head in arguments. Yeah. 
yeah. and just be like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And um, yeah, so it's it's hard, dude. Like, and it's frustrating. Like my uh, basically, so ever since I moved to Chengdu, I really my friends are all Chinese, and like, uh, they're like very like hip like edgy Chinese people who are like speak excellent English, watch foreign shows, um, are generally like have VPNs even. But when I've tried to engage them on the subject of Xinjiang or Hong Kong, they are either uninterested or kind of incredulous. Um, they just don't want to talk about it or they don't believe it. And then it always ends with something like, Oh, well I'm not that interested in politics anyway. Yeah. I think, it's understandable in that just there's no reason to be into politics, right? If you know nothing's ever going to change and you've never grown up in a culture of having political dissent, then why would you get into it? Uh, my Chinese friends who are into it, I mean, they're basically, you know, they're people who have just accepted that they're always going to be on the margin of society. And um, this is what got me in trouble with a lot of the tankies yesterday on Twitter. Is uh, I was posting about a, a friend of mine from my grad program who uh, he had studied abroad. He's a Haigui, and he uh, posted something pro-Hong Kong on, on WeChat Moments. And one of our classmates immediately deleted him. Another asked him to blur her out of his profile picture. Mm. But he's, like, such an outlier in terms of all the Chinese people I know. I know there are WeChat groups for, like, people like him, and I know those are getting, like, wildly censored right now. But it is. It's, like, a tiny subculture of Chinese people our age who, like, um, are just, like, very actively monitoring situation and like are just clear like that the hong kong protesters are in the right as far as i can tell yeah i remember when i first got here like i think my first month or two i was like oh i'm gonna be like jordan and like talk about democracy and shit and then i you realize very quickly that like that's not the game and then i think i had like you know a, a solid two years of like oh listening is interesting like it's sort yeah. of fun hearing like what people think about these sorts of things yeah. but when there's something like that hong like hong kong that happens you just like don't want to fucking hear it um, yeah. And it's one of these things where you get reminded on a daily basis about the type of country you're living in. And it's, uh, you know, it's a it's a real bummer because like there's so much like life and vitality in young China when you listen to stuff like Higher Brothers and whatever. But on the other on the other side of things, there's still a lot in contemporary Chinese society, which is very objectionable to my liberal American eyes. Yeah. Yep, it's a it's a bummer to say the least. Um, you just feel it in the air sometimes. Like my friend Brendan once said, he's just like my like my asshole clenches whenever I get into Chinese airspace. Like the second the plane crosses over the border, you're just like, like something about you just tenses up, and it's like, it's just you're in a different uh, world, right? I mean, we've seen pretty clearly the splintering of China from the rest of the world, not just in the internet, but like lots of infrastructure financial you know something i read about recently is the splintering of the you know the idol world i mean everything is just gonna is just gonna break off and you're gonna feel it in the air this like very thick vapor of oppression <laughs> so um so anyways let's 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 talk about that piece then you wrote you wrote recently about the sort of evolution of like idol culture and china this idea of the uh, of, of idols as sort of a uh a stand-in for the evolution of chinese pop culture um you've written two pieces recently uh, one about the kind of softization i don't know like the like the the softization softization <laughs> um as well as like the de-koreanization of uh chinese pop idoldom so yeah. um, uh, so what's going on in this space? Wow. I mean, it's it's just, I don't know. It's very interesting to me because I guess for the lay listener, like, uh, I guess now BTS is becoming big in America, but it's something that I think wasn't quite clear to me how different Asian pop culture is from Western pop culture and that 
Asian pop culture idols as like an industry are just huge. Yeah. Commercially, you see their faces blown up everywhere on endorsements. Like just celebrity endorsements are so much bigger here than they are in the States. You think so? Yes, for sure. Yeah. And especially celebrity endorsements by young men. We don't even have something resembling an idol industry in America because, I mean, South Korea kind of pioneered this and it's, you know, it's a, it's a system for creating idols who are, you know, singers and dancers who are really good looking and cute and um, can be used to sell a ton of products, right? So just to be clear, it's like, it's like Disney, um, what is it called? Disney, uh, what, what did like a Justin Timberlake and... Oh, what was that the mickey mickey mouse club it's like yeah it's like yeah so it's, like the, it's like the mickey mouse clubs on steroids basically they on take a these lot like, of steroids they take these like nine ten year olds yeah, yeah. They take them it's out not of... that young it's not that young it's well, like the earliest they'll be recruited is like 13 or 14 okay. anyway yeah. so, so they're they they leave school no they um, stay in school nominally they stay in school. Oh, you, yeah you the, soul, me, you're the, the soul high school of performing arts is where all the young idols are nominally studying okay because they i think they legally have to stay in high school but I think what, what happens in it's like, practice... It's like the NCAA, right? You're like yeah, going to school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so there's a place called, yeah, in Seoul called the High School of the Performing Arts, which, by the way, would be an amazing article if anyone was ever to let me in there. But it's full of these trainees, idol trainees, uh, who have been recruited and who are going to school part-time, but also, like, training with their idol group to, like, debut. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, like, the most attractive school it's the just planet. the hottest school in the entire <laughs> world. <laughs> so anyway, so they, they sign contracts very early and their freedom is very much restricted and their and their kind of lives are controlled and they come out with these manufactured personalities, which has a part of them shining through, but it's very much like yeah. in a like sort of old, old Hollywood system where you're kind of controlled by the uh, by the machine around you. Yeah, traditionally that's basically how it works. There's kind of there's kind of an interesting fracture going on that's been caused by BTS that belongs to a whole other podcast. But BTS kind of was a coup for the idol industry, and in that the reason they succeeded is because they were able to circumvent the institutions around so? it. Just by showing their true selves and by just being very direct with their fans, right? So typically idols in speeches, if they win an award, the first thing they say is, I thank the CEO of my agency. Oh, yeah. But BTS... Who's like always some like creepy yeah, man. Yeah, I mean, usually, allegedly. Uh, <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> um, but BTS, what they did is like, it's very horizontal. Like they always first thank their fans they're, and they're just super sincere and they just are just generous with their personal lives. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was that was their coup and i think the uh, and they came from a small agency as well coming back to korean stars in china yeah. and um how this idol system has has changed or, oh, or okay. how, they, how are the influence of the korean idol system yeah so uh so yeah so if we go back to that piece i did which was uh the pop idols are too soft for the party it, it traces the the origin of this house yin phenomenon the little fresh meat and <laughs> which is the term coined on the chinese internet for um basically Korean style idols in like 2012, 2013, which was the year, which was a huge year because it was the year that EXO, which is probably the second biggest boy group of this century, oh, sorry, of this decade blew up. Um, and that group had very cannily recruited Chinese idols, two of which were Chris Wu, a.k.a. Wu Fan, and Luhan, a.k.a. Luhan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so for a while, it was kind of the golden age of Korean wave culture coming into China because... They could just go and have, uh, you know, just sell at stadiums in China because they were so big because they had these Chinese speaking idols um, and people just adored them. And then uh, so that imported like Korean fan culture into China. And that was a big victory for SM, which is their agency, which is kind of the biggest and most ruthless agency in the idol industry. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but that didn't uh, succeed for very long because what happened is a year and a half later, uh, the Chinese members, with the exception of one, uh, sued them for maltreatment and went back to China and made just an absolute killing, you know, being huge idols in their home country um, because it does have a, you know, a growing middle class and there is a population of 1.4 billion here so they can make just a ton of money. Sure. And then, so that was the first blow and then the second blow was the THAAD missile defense system in which... Uh, um, South Korea agreed to cooperate with the U.S. to build a uh, missile defense system that China sees as a threat to its security. And uh, China uh, levied sanctions. And um, ever since 2016, no Korean idol group has been allowed to come into China to give a concert or just promote. I mean, Korean stars uh, who had previously been on lots of Chinese reality shows came here all the time. Um, their faces would be blurred out in oh, reruns geez. of shows. Oh, yeah. I mean, come on. You saw season two of Rap of China, right? It gets real Stalinist <laughs> here. If they don't like someone, they just boop, you know, just blur out the face, mosaic the face. Um, and um, so that was a, a big change. And so then what started to happen is it's kind of like import substitution. It's half import substitution and half, I think, just a concerted effort to build your own idol industry that you can better control. I mean, because, for example, there there would be all these geopolitical uh, conflicts. Like, if something happened in the South China Sea, uh, you know, the Chinese idols would have to go on Korean television and be like, uh, you know, f*** this, like, uh, China... Uh, you know, I'm a patriot. Uh, there was once a Taiwanese idol who waved the Taiwanese flag Ooh. on a Korean reality show. And she yeah. had to, you know, absolutely bend the knee to get back into the good graces of China, which was putting pressure on her agency. Um, and so, you know, it's just too spontaneous stuff like that for China. And so um, in the past few years, China. There's also a commercial aspect to it. You know, there was investment in this in this industry. People started to understand the the steps that it took to create these idols. Yeah, yeah, and it's another it's another classic issue because and they do still rely on South Korean expertise, which, by the way, is the idol industry in South Korea is way at overcapacity now, and so we'll probably keep seeing professionals from Korea coming in. And what China's oh, going to so do? That's so funny. It's like it's like the I remember I was at the curling. Uh, the, the the curling world championships here in Beijing and met the coaches of the Chinese team who of course are all Canadian. Oh so yeah. It's, so it's like you're importing the coaches from yeah. uh, from South Korea to give everyone the dance lessons. Oh and yeah, no. And, and and by the way, I mean practice. K-pop K-pop and and various sports are exactly the same idea. Like the the sport, it's kind of like communist sports culture in a way. In that at a very young age, you just train like crazy. Uh, you all live together in dorms. Um, and I, I am ready to talk about MMA right now, and it's just insane how. The, the crossover or just how in how many ways it's similar, the MMA industry to, to K-pop. So what's up with girl groups in China? Typically, girl groups are big, but they have never been as big as boy groups. It's it's actually, that's a whole other interesting thing because also like the dances they do are not as complicated as boy groups. And so it's also less respected. Oh, um, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have any idea why? Or is it just like really obvious? It's like why their dances are less complicated yeah uh, well it's just like it's just like the look they're going for is like to be cute. i think I'm to sure be cute are, i'm yeah. sure they're very competent dancers right oh like, no i'm sure they're great dancers it's just the if you ask like dance instructors they'll be like oh yeah it's way easier to teach a uh, girl k-pop dance than boy k-pop dance huh. yeah but girl groups are uh big but they don't uh i mean i guess for obvious reasons because the the base is still teen girls it's not all teen girls but you know the the boy groups do have a, a stronger hold over that demographic base but there was a very popular so there have been two very popular idol production shows in the past few years and uh one of them was uh produce 101 i think was the girl one yeah. um and 
that was very popular, although I don't think quite as popular as Idol Producer, which was the boy one. But Produce 101 did, um, I mean, you had Wang Ju, who was the famous, the woman who was like slightly curvy, although still like incredibly gorgeous. Like if you saw on the street, she'd be a beautiful woman, but everyone was like, oh, she's so unconventionally beautiful and that's my queen. And she <laughs> she had quite a, a, a rise to fame and she's now, um, she's getting her bag as the, uh, the Chinese, mainland Chinese uh, spokesperson for Fenty Beauty, which is Rihanna's beauty brand. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so Fenty's finally entering China, and she's going to be their spokesperson. Shout out to whichever um, you know marketer picked her. Oh yeah, that was the perfect choice because it's like because Fenty's whole thing is like beauty diversity, and you know they'll yeah, have like women she's in like, like she's like she's yeah. like two and a half shades darker. Yeah, she's than, like, like two and a half shades idol. darker, ten pounds <laughs> heavier, but you know, uh, you know, it's it's a start. But yeah, so girls groups, you don't see them in endorsements as much. You still see them. But yeah, it's just it's a it's big industry, but not as big. So you recently wrote a piece comparing the Japanese, Korean, Taiwanese and mainland Chinese versions of this uh, one show called Meteor Garden, which must have taken hundreds and hundreds of hours of yes. your um, dedicated research. It was, I'm curious <laughs> what you um, what, what you came from this from this deep cross cultural uh, pop culture analysis. Uh, this is just my sweet spot, man, is if I get to watch a lot of romantic comedies and write a, you know, pseudo socialist article about it, that's, that's my happy place. Uh, no, but I mean, seriously, like, um, so what was the show? First of all, the show. Oh, so the show is called, um, it has several names. Uh, it's known in Taiwan as Meteor Garden in South Korea as, uh, Boys Over Flowers and, uh, Boys Over Flowers. So it's Hanayori Dango in Japanese, which means boys are, or that's how they translated it. But it comes from a manga that first was published in 92. And then there was a live action Taiwanese version in 2001. And then uh, Japan adapted it live action. Korea adapted it live action. Korean, because that was, then that uh, overlapped with the whole Hallyu wave. Uh, so that was just absolutely huge. And then mainland China remade it uh, last summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and the premise is there's like this uh, clique of just absolute tyrants who rule over this high school and they're all the sons of large conglomerates. And they're just, uh, they like just resort to physical violence to bully the school population. I mean, they just have their thumb on on the kids at the school. Uh, and it's, I think to me, it was a pretty obvious metaphor for, uh, the effects of like the financial crisis on East Asian economies because, and it was, I mean, the creator of the manga said like, this was explicitly about what happened in Japan after the crash in 1990 and how we were all just completely, uh, screwed by the really rich people who had run away with our money. And of course the conglomerates bounced back pretty fast. Well, ordinary people, there was layoffs and to this day, Japan is, uh, in its lost decade, right? I mean, salaries have been stagnating. Um, they've they've never bounced back. And um, the same thing happened after 97 to uh, some other East Asian economies. And um, I just thought the, the show was kind of a brilliant satire, you know, in the form of a teen romance drama because mm-hmm. the, uh, the protagonist is this girl who is working class, but her parents uh, kind of are just ske- plotted to get her into this uh, school, the one ruled by these this clique of uh, horrible boys. And of course, she stands up to the leader of this clique and they eventually fall in love, although only after, you know, lots of turbulence. And she's working class and her family is, you know, 
they're in a really precarious situation and in the class their class really does actually influence the relationship and my criticism was in the new one their class doesn't really come into it at all right so the these this clique of boys is they're the, no in longer the, in the chinese the mainland chinese in the mainland chinese one yeah so this group of boys are they're no longer just dumb tyrants they're like because the the main guy the heartthrob he is just dumb he's like straight up dumb in the earlier ones which is great because it shows the rich are not deserving they just kind of are born into this wealth uh, but in the new one, he's like a finance genius who's like made all his money himself. And it's just <laughs> it uh, it perpetuates the, the mythos of the deserving rich. And so uh, and of course, China is. Uh, yeah, so you know, why, why do you think that was the uh, that was the rewrite, the mainland rewrite? Well, because China wants to tamp down any narrative about social inequality and, and you know, massive wealth inequality that exists in this country. So um, why was the show even made in the first place? Uh, because they knew they could make a version that completely uh, was declawed, right? They were like, right. let's just make a, an acute romantic comedy about a rich, deserving, perfect boy who falls in love with an, a nice working class girl, right? So, uh, yeah, the new version sucked ass. <laughs> in conclusion. <laughs> uh, let's now turn to another theme of yours, which is uh, buildings and, and architecture more broadly. So what first drew you to this topic? Okay, yeah, so I think I've always been very sensitive to the built environment, I don't know why, or more. what's more that I don't know why other people aren't. Like, to me, it's, like, obvious that you would be very affected by the buildings and infrastructure around you. Um, I mean, even when I first came to China, I found the the built environment here oppressive, but I couldn't articulate why at all. Like, I just had no idea how to even begin to talk about that. And so I think um, how I got into this was just trying to read about history of urban planning and, and architecture and stuff and figure out why... I was so unsettled by certain parts of Chinese cities. Tombstone urbanism. Uh, so what is, what is this and where does it come from? Tombstone urbanism is a slightly tongue-in-cheek term for the prevailing uh, method of urban development in China since uh, the real estate market opened up in the late 90s, which is that you sell a big plot of land or the government, because the government owns all the land in China, you, send a big plot of, you sell a big plot of land to a developer and the developer quickly fills it with 30-story uh, high-rises and nothing else, right? And so those those tall buildings look like, because they're just in perfect rows, and so uh, they just look like tombstones. Those are called super blocks, right? They're typically enormously huge plots of land. So what do super blocks do to a city? Basically, it's like monoculture. It just, like, it just absolutely ruins the the richness of a city. And that there's only one use for this plot of land. There's It's just boring, right? You just walk around and it's like some sickly plants and then apartment buildings, um, which is bad for the soul. But more practically, it's bad for the environment because if you need to go anywhere, you have to get into a car and drive. And yeah. so it encourages car use. And of course, these super blocks are always surrounded by eight-lane highways, uh, which are meant to facilitate the cars. Um, and yeah, so the irony being, of course, you know, if you are in a place that has an ancient history and has really old cities, you know, these cities were not initially built for cars, right? This is, oh not, no, yeah. this is not Chicago. This is not uh, yeah. Los Angeles. Um, these are, these are places that were, uh, functioning with millions of people without mechanical transport. But the decision, yeah. the decision was made that, uh, this was the, this was the type of modernism that China wanted, not not the kind of like you know mixed uh mixed use development yeah which by the time by by the 1990s um was already in favor in the west but the yeah the, the chinese developers 
or, or the Chinese government decided that what was modern was uh, uh, what was modern and what what they wanted to bring was car driven. Um, yeah. As opposed to, um, you know, more. Uh, more hybrid use. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's what I talk about in my article. And I mean, to be fair, the West didn't do a good job with this either. I mean, they also, and there were people at the time criticizing us as we were doing this in the fifties and sixties. Um, I mean, the life and death of great American cities came out in, in 1960, but uh, yeah, it was very well established that this was a terrible mode of urban development by the time China started building these. And um, to be fair, I mean, cities were massively overcrowded Um and people lived in homes that were tiny and it was extremely uncomfortable and people had been deprived for a really long time. So, and this is also um, just anecdotally something that happened in the former Soviet Union as well is once uh, it fell is people were just absolutely raring t- to get cars and drive everywhere, even if it meant sitting in traffic forever. Um, and I mean, it it was also efficient, right, is to, to create uh, more housing as quickly as possible, is to just sell off the land to developers who would build towers as quickly as possible. Um, it was just, so it was a good short-term solution, but it was not a good long-term solution in terms of uh, the environment and also in terms of just like the urban fabric that we see today. So just to put some facts around the the, the superblock phenomenon, uh, you quote you quote a a study that that looked into the comparing the intersections per kilometer of new areas in Beijing, of Hutongs, of Pudong, and then Paris and Barcelona. So the new areas in Beijing have 14 intersections per kilometer. Hutongs have 119. Pudong and Shanghai has 17, and Paris, uh, Barcelona, in turn, are all over 125. Uh, so, so just to give you a sense of the uh, the density of streets and, and intersections there. One counterpoint to your take on the superblock from uh, from Yan, a fan of the show and an architect based here in Beijing. So, you know, is the superblock really entirely bad just because it looks imposing and is overscaled at first sight? Surely we're prone to condemn this type of generic identity-less construction as we like buildings with so-called character. But culture and character have a weight. They make an imprint on you. When you move into an old house in an old city, you choose to be imprinted. What if one doesn't want that kind of imprint? Actually, the kind of plain, dull, generic space might be the freest way of living. You can truly be who you are, free of the weight and culture of history. Yeah, so I think that's a, that's a fair criticism. And I do talk about this in one of my Superblock articles. I think the second one about the desire for anonymity, especially after you know just the just constant surveillance of the Mao era, is that people were just really excited to move into these completely anonymous plots in, in 30, identical 30-story apartment buildings. Um, and I'm very sympathetic to that as well. Like sometimes, I li- so I live in an old work unit housing, which is, it's like five stories at most, and there's guards, Ba'an, who are there all the time. Time, and sometimes I just don't fucking want to talk to them about where I was going or, or what color you know, your hair is, what my color my hair is, or what I bought at the market because they always do demand to see my groceries every time I go in. Oh, um, and so, I mean, I totally feel that. Um, I just don't think I think that you can have that kind of anonymous or more anonymous living without the super block, right? Like, I think. Like, it's possible to build high-rise housing. And by the way, you should build high-rise housing, like, because there's the need for it, right? Because there is a terrible housing shortage in a lot of areas. Um, I just don't think that you should build them in super blocks. Make the first story a restaurant. It's really not that much to ask. So it's the difference between having a perimeter block and having a a gated compound, right? Because for a perimeter block, it's all the the apartments are street facing and then you can easily install retail and stuff on the first floor. But if it's just a walled block with towers inside of it, it's much harder to 
put retail on the first floor, right? Because you'll go in streets in Beijing, and this was happening today as I was cycling, you'll just be cycling down a street and it's just a wall. Yeah. Yeah, on one side. And so it's, I mean, it is, there's like a lot of practical things with how to do this. And yeah, I mean, I don't think the super blocks are unsalvageable, but I also don't think anyone's ever going to change anything about them. You wrote about one paper of in one city that's trying to do some reform efforts. What are the um, what are the main hurdles to, to opening opening up these gated super blocks? I mean, I think it's just a combination of that nimbyism is that people don't want cars going through their super block, right? Because all the efforts at uh, opening up the super blocks have really been to for alleviating traffic. Yeah, not for I mean, pedestrians. I mean, I will say as a as a as someone who lives in a inward at a super block in an inward facing building, like yeah. not hearing cars is a pretty pleasant thing. Oh, for sure, yeah. And so, as long as you know, efforts at rectifying the super block are just aimed at giving cars more roads, like it's not good. No one likes that, except maybe the technocrats at the top. But the technocrats at the top also don't really give a shit, and I really don't think they are going to reform existing super blocks. So. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, it's the sort of the nimbyism as well as the yeah. yeah. If if you're the first one, then your property value goes down because you don't have the quiet yeah. birds chirping. You have um, you have cars honking in your ears. Let's turn now to these building hats, um, these little pagodas that are stuck on top of you know some super blocks. Other, I think the the Beijing. Uh, uh, it's Nanjian it's most morbid in one. Beijing. Yeah. Um, so so what's going on there? So this is a phenomenon that's not limited to Beijing, but is most prevalent in Beijing, uh, which is just putting a, just plopping a hat on a building. <laughs> uh, and by a hat, I mean kind of, if you imagine your third grade self imagines a Chinese roof, right? Kind of the slightly curved roof with the, the overhanging eaves. And uh, it's kind of been this phenomenon that has existed since the Republican era, because that's when people started having the idea to not build as they had been building for 2000 years to just put a Chinese hat on top of a block uh, and say that's kind of the the mixing of Western and, and, and Chinese architecture. Uh, so lastly, let's talk a little bit about central heating. So everyone in the South complains that they're actually colder than Northerners. What's, what's going on with this? <laughs> uh, well, China has something called the North-South Heating Divide. Uh, which has its origins in the 1950s after the the founding of New China and uh, basically resource scarcity. And of course, people, uh, you could only, when you were building new housing, um, which was not actually that much new housing that was being built during that time, but uh, you're building work unit housing and there was only so much resources. And so they kind of just made an executive decision everywhere north of the Huai River in the Qin Mountains. Yes. Yes, the Chinhai line uh, gets uh, central heat, and everywhere this is something Joe and Lai picked out. Joe of and Lai, yeah, supposedly Joe and Lai decided on this, and everyone's house does not. And it's kind of just the classic, like, um, kind of brutal decisions that just get made during that time, uh, but it persists to this day. So developers who build uh, new housing uh, south of of that line are not compelled to install central heating. And so people, you know, if you live somewhere like Nanjing or Shanghai, which has maybe climate of, say, Washington, D.C., uh, you don't have heat in your house. You don't have central heating, which means that you're only, if you want heat, your only heat source is a um, a window unit or a kongtiao. I don't know. What's the English name for that? I don't know. But it's like a thing you fix to your wall and it blows out 
it's not coming from like an it's not connected i had to do a lot of like hvac research for this article <laughs> it's not like there's not like a duct connecting to like a in a source of natural gas outside mm -hmm. so you're just it's just electric and it's it doesn't work very well because heat rises you know mm. so um you're just really f***ing cold if you live anywhere south of that and um nothing has really ever been done to remedy it it doesn't look like anybody is gonna change the policy um and so now what happens is rich people and you see ads for this all over you know where i live Chengdu, which is south of the line um in places like shanghai and nanjing rich people can install dinuan which is floor heating so you have these like little coils of, of heating Sounds lovely yeah under your floor and uh, it's expensive, but it can be done. And apparently that works pretty well. I wouldn't know because I didn't have it this winter. So it was extremely miserable. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real bummer. Sure. Yeah. So this has been a bit of a bummer of an episode. I wonder if you, we could close, Lauren, on some uh, recommendations for uh you know contemporary pop culture for folks uh, looking to get into not uh, <laughs> uh looking to maybe like re 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 relight their flame oh post, man um uh, uh post this bummer of an episode oh man i uh well, funny the first thing that came to my mind was this rapper called blood's boy because he's like very much on the right side of history and he's just uh very um movingly uh honest to me He's on Twitter. You can look him up. His English is pretty good. But he's also extremely depressed, so he's maybe not the best <laughs> person to follow. Um, but I appreciate his honesty. And um, I don't know, just like young, really young Chinese people. Like I, uh, So I recently became a huge fan of, of the South Korean, you know, mega, mega, mega star boy group BTS. And through that, I connected with some teens in my area. Uh, and we do like go to fan events together occasionally. Uh, and they're just so um, cute and excited about things. And they use VPN to like look at BTS content because that's amazing. So much of it is, is outside of the firewall. I mean, I've said this before, I'll say it again. If you want to overthrow the regime, you need to get uh, the CIA to infiltrate BTS and, uh, you know, just stick some messages about you know overthrowing the ccp in it <laughs> and these teen girls will be on it uh and they also did the same thing for chris Wu of exo who we mentioned earlier they they also jumped the firewall to to buy his album so um you know people have all kinds of reasons i think it's that i think it's mostly that and porn actually is why people use vpn yeah um but you uh you can just hope people will kind of you know eventually learn something but no i mean i don't know like i just just remember that, you know, the the Chinese nation state is not the same as Chinese people, which is, I think, a mistake a lot of people, including our friends, the higher brothers make is conflating um, a people with a authoritarian regime. Right. Like they're they're different. And, um, you know, no regime, whatever its color, deserves to be accepted from criticism. Mm. So. Uh, yeah, I think there needs to be more people to people contact. Um, one of my, my pet projects that I hope to accomplish within a year is I just want to make a very simple documentary about the lives of my Baoans, who are the, the security guards in my Xiaochu and, um, just the lives of middle-aged Chinese men and just because they're, they're very cute. They like cook for each other inside of the little, the gatehouse area. Yeah. Um, and just like what they see. You know, I think there needs to be more reporting on the on the lives of everyday people. Um, encouraging pop culture. Yeah, see, a few years ago, I would have said the Higher Brothers, although, yeah, I'm a little worried about their 
no, I mean, I don't know. Like where I live in Chengdu, like there's just like a really cool underground culture of people who are just like really into fashion and really into music. Like if there's this one club, club called Funky Town that I recommend visiting uh, whenever, if you ever go to Chengdu and it's free, like it's tiny, but it, it's free and you it's just packed with like kids with like the most crazy fashion like you see trans kids even like which is something you basically never see in china yeah um and so uh that's really cool and i think whenever anyone is genuinely really excited about something that's always something that makes me happy and that's kind of what i try to gravitate to in my writing is people who are who are really passionate about something yeah rather than just surviving yeah (laughs) i will say i will say the um uh, doing working with the PKU musical club and putting on Hamilton was an incredibly yeah. encouraging, happy thing. Yeah, um, dude. Uh, the Jiao Dai Club in Beijing, Dai, uh, yeah. which is uh, also a pretty gay-friendly place. Um, and uh, just like amateur hip-hop shows yeah. are so... You know, people are making no money doing this stuff. Yeah. Um, but they love it and they record these full albums. Like, I saw someone propose to his girlfriend on stage Aww. once. You know, it's just... it's There's there's a lot of um, a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of um, sort of like raw talent and, and, and young people, as well as people who have been doing this stuff for 10 years, but who are still uh, kind of out there just like having, having fun being on stage. Also, yeah. also I would say... Um, uh Huaju, uh modern some modern drama in in beijing if folks want to mm-hmm. get on damai and and just go to some stuff there's a gulo theater which is small maybe like a black box that seats maybe 200 uh, half the shows they do are are translated from from uh, uh from english and they're they're just wonderful yeah it's all it's all about the subcultures i mean those are the things that make me not depressed and even happy so focus on those lauren thanks so much for coming on china econ talk of course happy to be here China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. So my in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $10 off your first order using the code PREPARED10. Now the only thing to worry about is dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.